Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel South London. You can visit us at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org. in the second of our sessions looking at the first international missionary journey and today's topic is God-centered preaching you heard it come out in my prayer God-centered preaching and as most of you know we're in the book of Acts and we're looking at the history of the early church and today we're aiming to cover verse 14 through to 23 of chapter 13 acts 13 14 to 23 and i'm gonna begin reading in verse 13. now paul and his companions set sail from paphos and came to perga in pamphylia and john left them and returned to jerusalem but they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a messenger to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of exhortation um, for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, I'm reading from the ESV, and with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Last week, we talked about God's faithful servants who set out on their first missionary journey after being sent out by the leadership in the church at Antioch under the direction as we saw of the Holy Spirit and we saw how they namely Barnabas and Saul who now is called Paul how they were prepared to serve they were prepared to be led and they were prepared to preach and we'll see a great example of preaching today by Paul after leaving Antioch draw from my map after leaving Antioch in Syria 
I'll make a point of that. The dynamic duo, along with John Mark, after landing at Salamis on the east coast, traveled to Paphos on the west coast of Cyprus. And we pick it up in verse 13, where Paul and his companions, notice, see the emphasis shift from Barnabas now to Paul. Paul and his companions set sail from where? From Paphos, where we left them last week. Here, we have the journey so far. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a broader map um, of the area so you can see further where they actually traveled. It says, verse 13 says, they set sail from Paphos and they came to a place called where? I want you to follow me. Where did they go from Paphos? Right, they went north up to a place called Perga, which is in a place called Pamphylia, which is ancient Antalya or Antalya province. province. If you've ever been to Turkey, maybe you may have been to this place. Um, and I say Turkey, although the Bible, New Testament language called it um, Asia Minor, we know that today it's actually modern day Turkey. Now, when they arrive at Perga, it says, John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now, what made John, or what made John Mark, leave the mission? Now, you've got to remember, this is John Mark, the Mark who wrote the book of Mark, right? And this is encouraging because, to some degree, there's evidently a problem. John Mark has some kind of issue with Paul with Barnabas, probably Paul. And um, let me give you a few suggestions as to why he probably, possibly, could have had problems. First thing is, possibly, perhaps he was disillusioned with this new change of leadership. Thank you for turning on the lights. Maybe he was disillusioned with the new change of leadership. After all, Barnabas, the original leader, if you remember, was John Mark's cousin. You know, you know what nepotism is? Nepotism is when kind of like, let's say you've got a company or, and um, you want people to come and work for you, but rather than kind of pick the best people, you tend to pick your people, particularly members of your own family. You know what I'm saying? That's nepotism. And maybe John Mark is feeling like, you know what, I don't like the fact that, you know what I'm saying, all of a sudden you're taking over, Paul. You know what I mean? Who said all of a sudden you could be the leader? Look how long Barnabas has been leading. If it weren't for Barnabas, you wouldn't even be saved. Or, shouldn't say that. If it weren't for Barnabas, you probably wouldn't be here. Because remember, it was Barnabas that actually went and got Saul from Tarsus when he first went to Antioch. You know what I mean? So maybe he's got issues with Paul, possibly. The second reason maybe um, Mark had issues was possibly... He didn't like this whole emphasis on the Gentiles. See, John Mark possibly could have been a real Palestinian Jew at heart. Like, what's this business about bringing in the Gentiles? All right, I don't mind seeing a proselyte here and there that's a convert to Judaism, but it's like all of these Gentiles, it's kind of like there's more Gentiles, you know what I'm saying, around me than there are Jews. Possibly that could have been one of his problems. The third reason that commentators suggest that Mark had a problem is maybe he was afraid of the dangerous road that they were preparing to travel. 
the journey between um, Paphos where they landed and, and up to where they're going to go in a moment is very mountainous. And maybe he thought, you know what, I'm not up for this. I never signed up for this. Just had some long old journey by sea, had to travel the whole, across the whole of Cyprus, like a hundred miles overland. I'm, I'm tired of this. I'm fed up with it. I want to go home. Maybe that was one of the reasons why he ducked. Another reason is there's some evidence that Paul possibly became very ill in Perga, possibly with malaria. Furthermore, Paul preached to the people in Galatia who he's actually going to write the letter to when he gets back from this first missionary journey. And possibly in Galatians chapter 4, verse 13, um, Paul makes reference to this, saying, you know that it was because of a, a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you, that is the Galatians, at the first. So maybe it's because there was a breakout of malaria and Tutu's John Mark weren't feeling it. He wanted to keep and maintain his health. So he left, possibly. The fifth reason that some suggest is that he was just homesick. Acts chapter 12, verse 12 could suggest that his mum was a, a widow, possibly, and perhaps he could have felt the need to return to take care of her in Jerusalem. Now, I say we can be encouraged by this because for whatever reason he left, he left. Yet he went on to write the book of Mark. And you know, as believers, sometimes we hit those difficult points in our lives, right? Even to the point where sometimes we even backslide. Don't want to know about the Lord. You're involved in something, whether it's a ministry, whether it's something you know, in the local church or even internationally. And then you hit a, you hit a hurdle and you trip and you fall. Um, we're going to come back to John Mark a little bit later as we go through the book of Acts. And as I said, he actually recovers for whatever reason and actually ends up writing the book of Mark. So we can be encouraged by that. Now, we're not sure, but whatever the reason, Paul considers it to be a defection. You see that in Acts chapter 15, verse 38. And he sees it, that is Paul, as a fault, a fault on John Mark's part. Barnabas, on the other hand, was more willing to overlook the matter. And we're going to see a dispute between Barnabas and Paul again later. Verse 14 of our text. But they, that is Paul and Barnabas, they went on now without John Mark from Perga. And to make things really confusing, they came to Antioch. But not Antioch that we're familiar with in Syria. This is now Antioch in a place called Pisidia. And you see, they travel up north through the mainland of Turkey and they come to this new or other Antioch in Pisidia, which is about 100 miles north of Perga. And again, this is a major city, another significant Roman colony. And again, we see Paul and Barnabas strategically visit where? The synagogue. Preaching to the Jew first and then also to the Greek or the Gentile. Look at verse 14b. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and they sat down. It's funny, this is so reminiscent of when we went on our mission trip to Jamaica, at least the last one, 
because we went to Jamaica and we felt like, you know, what we need to do is rather than just go out and begin to talk to the people and share the gospel and so on, we thought, you know what, maybe we need to be strategic, strategic like the apostle Paul was. I mean, all of this stuff really began to influence us, you know what I mean? And we thought, rather than going to the kind of the rural areas, even though we didn't um, neglect it because we did go there, we thought, you know, let's, let's allow this trip, the focus to be on maybe one of the major cities, and we went to Negril. And in going there, we had opportunity to go to a church, and just like Paul and Barnabas, in this sense, got to sit down in this church, having met the leadership, and then had opportunity to do what we're going to see Paul do in a minute. Now, it says, they went into the synagogue and sat down. Evidently, Paul and Barnabas had either been introduced or made themselves known because... Verse 15 says, after the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, hey, you're here, innit? We know that, boy, you're from Jerusalem, that's Barnabas, or at least he was based there, and you're from Antioch. We got synagogues there, you know what I mean? And you're Jews, it's like, hey, you're here, Look, why don't you just share the word with us, innit? If you have any word of exhortation for the people, come, speak it, share it. We will now hear Paul the Apostle's first recorded sermon, or at least a part of it, because it's a very long one. We ain't got time to deal with all of it. And we will hear various people mentioned by the Apostle. We're going to hear him mention King Saul once. We're going to hear him mention Samuel the prophet once. Then we're going to also hear him mention King David twice. Then he's going to mention Israel 12 times but none of these in the text are the ultimate focus we're going to see him mention God the Father guess how many times I don't know if you noticed it as we were reading at least 22 times but then as we're going to go on to see next week we hear him mention the Lord Jesus at least 25 times. I thought someone outside, outside said, wow. They needed to. 25 times he mentions the Lord Jesus if you count the personal pronouns. See, we're talking about God-centered preaching. Unmistakably, the heart of Paul's message is Jesus. We will see this again, as I mentioned, further develop next week. This week, we're going to look particularly at the 22 or so references to God the Father. And he starts off with the Old Testament predictions or the prophecies that relate to Jesus, verse 16. So, Paul having been handed the mic, handed the lecture, then I'll put on his little tie mic, and he stands up and he, and he motioned with his hands. I'm encouraged by that because I tend to be very animated. So I was right. As I'm reading this, I'm right there. You know what I mean? So he motions with his hands and said, men of Israel or Jews. Possibly there could have been women in the synagogue if it was liberal. But he's particularly specifically speaking to Jews. And here also is a group that I didn't mention. You who fear God. Men of Israel, the Jews, but then also 
you who are here who are not Jews who fear God or the God-fearers who were a group who probably sat in second-class seats in a second-class category of the synagogue. They would have been in the back, as the Americans say, or off to the side. They were not proselytes because proselytes typically were circumcised. This was probably a group of Gentiles or non-Jews who feared God. But they were not fully-fledged converts to Judaism. They hadn't done all that was necessary to qualify them as a part of God's covenant people. And it's a little bit like those who may have come today, who are meeting alongside us, who meet alongside us, who are Christians, fully-fledged, card-carrying. That is, those who have accepted or appropriated the sacrifice of Christ. Those who have repented of sin and continue to live in a state of repentance. How many of you know that that added part is necessary? You know what I mean? You didn't repent once, but we repented and we continue to live in a state of repentance because repentance is a change of mind. We didn't change our mind and then change our minds back again, right? We continue to live in that changed of mind, change, changed mindset. And God constantly challenges us, doesn't he? Because we're constantly wanting to change our mind. That is back to the way we used to think. Why can't I do that anymore? Oh. See, and we, that is those of us who are Christians, we trust in Christ alone for salvation. Unlike the time when I was a Catholic, when I used to trust in the church, used to trust in Mary, used to trust in beads, used to trust in the priest, used to trust in the catechism, used to trust in everything, and maybe Jesus was somewhere in there on the list, equal to all of those other things. No, we trust in Christ alone. And it's through faith alone in Christ alone. And I should tag baptism onto that because Christians get baptized. Those who have been baptized and those who are in the process of being baptized. You might be here, you got saved last week and you're not baptized yet, it's all good. But you're planning to get baptized, right? Because you're a genuine Christian. Now it's not a prerequisite for salvation, like, you know what I mean, like faith in Christ. No, you're saved apart from baptism But if you are saved, you will get baptized, Matthew 28. Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel unto every creature, right? And those who believe, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? Baptism, not a prerequisite for salvation, but it is a sign of salvation. So I'm describing a group of us who are Christians, who are saved. And if you say that you're a Christian and you know what, you're not, you're not yet baptized for the right reasons because time has not permitted you yet, but you say you're a Christian and you don't want to be baptized, something's wrong. And if you can't identify with this list, then you might be a quote-unquote 
God-fearer. You see the distinction? And the point is, there are two groups in here this afternoon. And in similar fashion, on this particular Sabbath day in Pisidian Antioch, there was a distinction between these two groups in the synagogue. You had Jews and God-fearers. Now, at this point, you might feel a little demeaned, or you might feel a little denigrated or patronized, possibly even offended. Don't be discouraged. You're actually in good company. Because every one of us who is called Christian has been offended by this message at some point. So hey, like join the club. Literally. Join the club. I would encourage you to keep listening. As Paul says at the end of verse 16, listen. Listen. Verse 17, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. Now they would have loved this. They would have, oh, he's going to, oh, this visiting preacher, he's going to talk to us about Abraham. Hey, hallelujah. And notice verse 17 Abraham didn't choose God, God chose Abraham. Right? That's in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the Lord Jesus actually says, something very similar to his disciples in John chapter 15 verse 16 Jesus says to his disciples you didn't choose me I chose you who did the choosing Jesus did who chose in our verse in Acts chapter 13 verse 17 God did then what did he do He made the people great. That is the people that he chose. When? During their stay in the land of Egypt. That is during the time from Joseph to Moses and then their consequent deliverance from Egypt. From Pharaoh, that wicked taskmaster who had them in bondage. Reminds us of our time before we got delivered from the devil who had us bound by sin. And how? How did he deliver them? It says, with an uplifted arm. Another translation says, with mighty power. Now who did this? Remember who the focus of his preaching is? Remember who the focus of his text is? Who did this? God did this, it says at the beginning of this verse. And he goes on to say, he, that is God, led them out of Egypt. Now can you begin to see, as Paul is recounting Israel's history, he does so with the emphasis on God and what he did. As opposed to the importance and centrality of anyone else. This is God-centered preaching and these Jews like McDonald's they're loving it probably rubbing their hands together and smiling you know what I mean why because God chose them God made them great God delivered them with his mighty power and God had led them how long for 
Look at verse 18. For about 40 years, he, that is God, he put up with or carried. It's really difficult to, 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 to translate this word. Some say he put up with them. Makes sense, don't it? If you know the, the, the history of Israel. Some say it means he carried them. The Greek word, if you change just one letter in the middle, can mean one of those two. Put up with or carried. And he says he did this with them in the wilderness. Now, honestly, I would suggest that God did both. He put up with their constant complaining, right? And then he carried them as if it were on eagles' wings. Verse 19, and after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, that is through Joshua, because Moses had died at this point, then he gave them their land as an inheritance. Verse 20, all this took about 450 years. See, Some, a lot of Muslims look at this verse and they say, see, the Bible's contradictory because in the Old Testament it says 400 years. Well, 450 years... 400 years in Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness, and 10 years conquering Canaan under Joshua. 400 plus 40 plus 10 is 450. All this took about 450 years. And what, and what happened? God put up with them. God carried them. And God destroyed their enemies. You can hear all of the Jews in the congregation saying, saying amen. After that, God established them as a nation. I mean, it gets better. Giving them their own land. And if that wasn't enough, then he gave them judges. How many judges did he give them? Well, here's a few. Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, Barak, Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson. All the way up until Samuel the prophet. At this point, as Paul's recounting the wonderful, colorful history of Israel, at this point, something noteworthy happens. God's people, Israel, begin to get proud and arrogant. They forget about the day when they was in the slime pits and they had to make bricks. Remember, with straw. Then he takes away all of the ingredients that they got and they still got to make bricks. And they were dying by the hundreds, by the thousands. In bondage, in slavery. They forget about that now. Now, they begin to get proud and arrogant. Because they got things. You know what I'm saying? Can we identify with that? They get proud and arrogant. As if it were, that, as if it were they that had made themselves great. Rather than be grateful and appreciate God, their ruler. Rather than appreciate God as the one who has given them all the things that they have, they renege on that. Or they go back on their word. Now, they're like, you know what? We don't really need God. Now notice they don't say it like that, but that's what they mean. We don't really need God. First Samuel chapter 8. Verse 1 through to verse 9. It says, 
when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in a place called Beersheba. Yet his sons, this is Samuel, his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. You know, you might be a parent and you're trying your hardest to bring up your kids. I mean, I don't know if you're going to have a list of 10, 15, 20 people out of the Bible. If you were to say, who are some of the most faithful people in the Bible? I'm convinced that at least I would say Samuel was one of them. Yet as a faithful man, look. Look at his kids. This helped me to remember that no matter how we try as parents to raise our kids, at a certain point, they become responsible for themselves. And we try all that we can and we do all that we can. And, we, and we're not perfect, are we, as parents? I hope I can get a witness on that one. You know I mean, I'm not on my own. But here we see that even though Samuel, who you'd expect to have amazing kids, if it was just down to him, right? Both of them, not just one of them, both of them are off key. They turn aside and look, they take bribes and they pervert justice. Verse 4, then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, behold, you are old, Samuel, and your sons do not walk in your ways. You know what? Things need to change right now. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. And that's the interesting part. Because it makes you wonder if they, one of the reasons why they want a king is not just because they want a king, but because they want to be like the nations. But now they come out with a quote-unquote spiritual reason, you know what I'm saying, to kind of justify their actions. Who knows? And I don't have time to preach this portion. Suffice to say, they want to change. We don't like the way things are running. Evidently, things ain't good, Samuel. I mean, surely you have to even admit to that yourself, looking at your kids. And he said, behold, we need to do something different. Verse 6, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. That's a good response to drama, whatever it looks like, right? And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, you know what, Samuel, don't even fight it. Don't even stress it. You know what you do? Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. I can see Samuel like with his eyes wide open saying, what? Lord, you ain't serious. I wonder if I'm hearing things like back in the day when I first became a prophet. I'm like, and the Lord says, you know what? For they have not rejected you, but they've rejected me. It's me they've rejected from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, check it. This never started today for them. Just like David when he sinned. This never started today. Look, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. Don't be surprised at this, Samuel. Not all that are Israel, are Israel. Forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are also doing to you. 
Verse 9, now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. See, Israel thought, Israel thought that they knew what they needed. And they were determined that they were going to have it. But notice, at the heart of what they wanted is the heart of what they didn't want. They didn't want God. Verse 7, God says, they rejected me. And it's not just now, says the Lord, it's from they. They've been forsaking me and serving other gods. After all that I did for them. And God says, okay, give them what they want. And God in the midst of being rejected, check it. He still shows compassion and great loving kindness by saying in verse 9, solemnly warn them and show them. It's like even another opportunity. Look. All right, you want a king? Yeah, we want a king. All right, then look, let me just show you what it's going to look like. And he paints the picture. Read it in 1 Samuel. Hopefully that they'll be like, mm-mm, boy, hey, maybe that's not such a good idea, you know. Let's have a quick committee meeting. All right, Moses. All right, Samuel, sorry. You're right. God's right. We're wrong. Hey, no. God warns them and paints it out clearly, predicts what the king is going to be like, what he's going to do but they're still not having it. Why? Because their face is already set like flint. This is what we want. Remember in the wilderness, we want meat. God will be like, I gave you manna. You get me? I'll give you, I'll give you, I'll give you a cloud that follows you during the daytime to, to, to shade you from the sun. You don't need SPF 15 sunscreen, right? He says, look, during the nighttime, I'll give you fire. Why? Because in the wilderness, the temperature drops rapidly and it's freezing. Just like you hear them talking about on the football in South Africa. Once the sun is up, it's scorching. As soon as the sun goes down, it's freezing. And God be like, I'll give you a fire to keep you warm. Like transportable, like radiators to keep you warm. And, if, and after all of that, you reject me. Remember they said, we, we, we tired this, uh, tired of this manner, fed up of this. You'd be like, the Bible says, if you have food and clothing with these things, be content, right? We'd be like, Lord, I'm tired of living in this two bedroom. Tired of this, tired of this old car. Fed up with this job. Sick and tired of this woman. You get me? <laughs> it's, tell me it ain't true. You know what I mean? And, and God's like, all right, so what do you want? Well, we don't want no more manna. We want meat coming like. What happened to the leeks and the, remember fam, the leeks and the melons? Yeah, when we was in, in Egypt. We want some meat. And God's like, Psh. all right, you want meat? All right, then. It's not what you need. Yeah, I know, but it's what I want. All right. Here it comes. And the quail flows, what, 10 feet above the ground so they can grab them. And they get meat today, tomorrow, next week, the week after. They get so much meat, it begins to come out. The Bible says it begins to come out of their nostrils. God will give you what you want so much so that it will make you sick. 
And I tell you, consistently, I see evidence that, that encourages me to be a Christian. Because the Bible is heavy. You know what I mean? Every one of us have been in circumstances and situations where we've had too much of one thing. Jamaica, in Jamaica, my mom used to say, too much of one thing, good for nothing. And it's true. You get too much of one thing, it could be the greatest thing. Chocolate ghetto. Oh. That's how I feel now, before I taste it, right? Oh my gosh. Two, three slices later, I've had enough. I don't want to, I don't want to see it. I don't want to, I don't want to smell it. Bible, oh Lord. So God gives them what they want. Back to Acts 13, verse 21. So, then they asked for a king and God gave them. Notice, God gave them. Who's in control? Okay. God, I want you to notice, is still in control. Even though the people are completely out of control. Even though the people think they are in control. No, God is in control. And God is in control. Who is that? Osmond Collins. And what they thought would be the most wonderful thing turned out to be one of the greatest curses. And his name, because you know sometimes people are cursed. And his name was Saul, the son of Kish. A man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. Here, you, you want a king? Okay. Here's a king. Which, yay! <laughs> I'm, I'm sure it wasn't even five years later. There wasn't a hey! It was more like a, oh my gosh. Who, who was it that said that they want, who? It was you, innit? Chatting about we need a king. I can't believe we followed you. Check it, 40 years which is half a lifetime. The result of one decision. Imagine that happening to you. You're like, I know exactly what to do. I know exactly what I need. And it's not God. We don't say it like that. And what you do is you make one bad decision and you pay for it every single day for the next 35 years of your life. You think it's a joke. How many of you know we need God to be our king? Because we don't know what we want. We don't know what we need. One minute I want this. You know what I'm saying? You're in school. Most teenagers know exactly what they want and exactly what they need, right? And you're in school and you think, hmm, what do I want to do? Yeah, I want to be an accountant. And you go to college, you get your A-levels, and then you go to uni for three years, and then you... And now you're a qualified accountant. That's what you wanted, right? Well, I didn't say nothing, but a year into going to uni, I'll be like, do I really want to be an accountant, though? 
And that's just a simple example, a simple illustration. It's not just teenagers. It continues throughout the rest of our lives, doesn't it? I know what I want. I know who I want. We need God to be our king. I heard someone say that, you know what? If for you to know exactly what you want and exactly what you need, right? You would have to know the future. Because you can't look from this point of view, from this perspective, going linear towards the end of your life and think, I know exactly what I need. No, you can't say that. How are you going to say that? To say, I know this is exactly what I need is like saying, let me not say that. (laughs) For me to know exactly what I need in the next five years and where I need to be, really would mean me going to the end of my life and looking back and saying, hey, that was exactly what I needed, right? You can't from this point of view say that. You can only say that if you know the future. And how many of us know the future? Mystic Meg. I saw this woman on television. I can't remember her name. And she went to these clinics where you go because you're you're overweight and they do those operations on you. And this woman, she was really overweight, and I never caught the program, but she was some kind of mystic woman. Did anybody see that? You saw that, but she never saw it. That is, she never saw it coming, that she was going to get overweight to the point where she'd have to go to a clinic to get her stomach clipped. <laughs> and she's a mystic. And you and me, we ain't no mystic. But I'm not a mystic, but I could have t- said to her... I could have said to her, you know what, sis, it's better you just make Jesus your king, yeah? Back then, before you became a mystic, I nearly said a misfit, before you became a mystic, you know what I mean? Because, and that's true for all of us, the best thing we can do is just get on our knees on a, on a daily basis and say, Lord, you know what, I have no idea. Bun my planner. Bun my what is it they have in Microsoft? Your, my, your Microsoft Outlook. Or your, your, what's it in Apple? What are them old school, leather bound? Burn your file of facts. Everybody knows what that is, right? Burn that. You get, now it's full for the next month. If you're, if you're really on it, you know, if you're really A-type, for the whole year, you've got business meetings and here, there, and flying. It's like, but regardless of your plans, you get on your knees and you say, Lord, you know what? I have no idea what the next five minutes will bring. So, Lord, I lay it all before you. Because a man plans his way. It's all right to plan. But it's only the Lord's purpose, really, that's going to stand. You know what I mean? We need God to be our king. Verse 22, and when he had removed him, oh, wait a minute, when he, who's the he? God who put him in there in the first place, when he, I'm telling you, God is in control. When he removed him, how? Because he's in control, 
You know, you know, God will allow certain things to take place sometimes in our lives. Even though it's not his desire. Yet, check it. It will always contribute and come back to fulfilling his purposes. Somebody say, God is in control. See, he raised up David now to be their king. And through David, a good king, God will use this as an object lesson to teach his people about himself. And also, through this line, bring his king into the world, Jesus, the king of kings. Verse 22b, of whom he, God, has testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Check it, verse 23, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior. Jesus, as he promised. They determined to do something, it wasn't God's will, but they went and done it, but even though they'd done it and it was messed up, God still used it and brought amazing glory to himself and fulfilled his purpose and plan. That's scary. Even through the disobedience and unwillingness of Israel, God still fulfilled his purposes by bringing a savior, actually the savior, Jesus, fulfilling his prophet promise. All the way back to Genesis 3 in the garden because man was lost and needed a savior. Now remember, this is Paul preaching. A man prepared to serve, a man prepared to be led, a man prepared to preach right here now in this synagogue, on this Saturday, on this Sabbath day, to these Jews and God-fearers. We're going to find out next week, God willing, how they respond. The question on the table right now is, how are we going to respond? As I mentioned earlier, God is central to this passage. God chose them. God made them great. God delivered them with his mighty power. God led them. God put up with them. God carried them. God destroyed their enemies. God gave them King Saul. God gave them King David. God gave them King Jesus. See, God is central. And the question is, what is their response? Well, historically, not this group in the synagogue, historically, Israel, they responded by faith, didn't they? God made them great when they were insignificant. God delivered them with his mighty power when overcome by their enemies. God led them when they didn't know where to go. God put up with them when they murmured and complained. God carried them when they were weak and without strength. God destroyed their enemies in battle when they were afraid and could not fight. 
And like he'll do to us, God gave them King Saul as a judgment. Temporary discipline. God gave them, on the back of their disobedience, King David as an object lesson because he was then going to give them King Jesus as the promised saviour. See, we have individuals in this room who are in covenant with God, who can identify with everything I've just put up on the screen. Individuals who are in covenant with God, and you know what it means to be chosen by God. You'll be like, Lord, I can't believe it. And you can identify, because you're in covenant now through Christ Jesus with God. But then also, in contrast to that in this room, we also have those who are not. And you have to be honest with yourself. I don't know what you came to hear today. But the Bible, God's word, is synonymous with so many different things. One of the synonyms used for God's word is that it's light. And it's like when you flick it on, it exposes and expels darkness. John 3 says, you know what, we would rather darkness because we can do what we want and no one don't see. But the Bible is God's word and it's like light and it exposes the darkness. And that's one of the things you need to appreciate about God's word. And be honest with yourself. See, what is your response to this? First of all, as Christians, how do we respond to this? We'd be like, man, you know what? I was bound in sin and God delivered me. Don't forget that. You know, you can, be, you can forget the pit from which you were dug. The skip that God found you in, remember? You can forget that. We can forget that. Peter says that. Sometimes we're short-sighted in that sense. Have you been in a place where you were completely insignificant before you come to the Lord? That's my testimony. I would completely insignificant. Overcome by your enemies. And now you've got God on your side fighting for you. If God is for you, who can be against you? If God is against you, it don't care which team you play for. Don't care who's backing you, how much guns and whatnot. Now you know that God is for you and you're secure in that. You're Christian. And you know those times when you murmured and complained. You might be in that place right now. Hey. Don't do that because God may give you what you want. And it will be painful. See? We're Christian. How do we respond to this? But secondly, if you're here and you're here because you want to be here, right? You never came just because my friend asked me so many times, what am I going to do? I can't tell him no again. Surely that's not the reason you're here. You've got your own mind. And to some degree, you're like, you know, I'm kind of open to the Bible. Or you might be, you know what? I'm coming to your church here. Yeah? And I'll sit through the service, but then I want to speak to your pastor. I don't know, that might be you. But for whatever reason you're here, what is your response to this? What is your response to those things that God has done? 
That's just a little bit of Jewish history. If we had time to talk about the history of the world, no matter what you do, God will always be the center of it. Why? Because it's his world. He made it. In Ephesians, it talks about those who are in the world without God. <laughs> that don't even make sense. Because God not only made the world, he made you too. Paul's going to say later on in Acts, in him we live, we move, and we have our being. And you don't know that. But maybe you had a little bit of insight today. What's your response? It goes on to talk about the fact that God has sent a savior. And his name is Jesus, as God promised. Possibly God made promises you didn't even know that he made. And that promise is for you. Even though you're not a Jew, even though you're not a Christian, you're a human being that has been created in the image of God. Yet that image has been marred by your sin. You're not, you're not just what you look at in the mirror. There's more to you. And the, the bit that you can't see is the most important part. And you see, if you don't respond to Jesus, if you don't respond to him as your savior, then you're going to perish. You're going to perish. The Bible talks about eternal separation from God in hell. And that's what Jesus came to save you from. He's the savior. He's the one who comes to rescue you what is your response we will pick up and focus next week on this other central character in Paul's sermon who is Jesus God centered preaching let's pray father thank you for the fact that you made us and not we ourselves and it's true, it is in you we live, we move, and we have our being. We were created to bring glory to your name. Yet, Lord, the temptation is to bring glory to ourselves and to fulfill our own desires and to see our own needs met. Father, help us to see desperately that the need that we have isn't blankety blank our real desperate need is is you it's for your pleasure we are and were created and we only find our pleasure we only find satisfaction we only find fulfillment when we find ourselves in you father i pray that you'd speak to us as believers today and help us to be grateful never forgetting how far you've brought us from the heights from which we fell in regard to our sin and if, if you didn't catch us as we were falling we, were, we, we, we would have been dashed on the rocks to pieces but you caught us and you saved us, you rescued us help us never to forget that but that we would constantly be grateful and respectful to you and also to one another.
help us not to be proud and arrogant, but to be humble. Because you give grace to the humble. You divinely enable the humble. But you resist the proud. So help us as believers. Lord, I pray for those who are here and they're God-fearers. They, but they don't know you. They respect the Bible. They respect the church. They believe in heaven and hell and God and the devil, but they don't know much more past that. Father, I pray that you would open the eyes of their understanding today because your word is light and it gives understanding to the simple, to the humble. Lord, I pray that you'd open blind eyes today and even bring those on the outside inside. Bring them into your family. Bring them into the new covenant. And rescue them through Christ Jesus, the Savior. Highlight sin, I pray, Lord. That people make people uncomfortable. And today say, wow, now I realize what it was. It's my sin. And those things that I've done to offend God. Lord, I pray that they'd receive your forgiveness today. And just be regenerated and washed clean.